8.4%, the reduction in carbon dioxide emissions in New York State between 1990 and 2015. New York State has embarked on a path to aggressively reduce carbon dioxide and all other greenhouse gases by 40% by 2030. In line with the Paris Accords, there's an even more ambitious target for an 80% reduction by 2050. How will we get there? We've got a great panel of experts discussing just that. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC, offering a brief introduction to the second part of our program on energy policy. In our prior podcast, we spoke with Seth Halkauer, the former COO of LIPA and an expert in the field, who explained the state's energy landscape, offered an assessment of the state's energy strategy, and outlined some principles for how New York can achieve a cost-effective reduction of greenhouse gases. If you missed that episode, do check it out. Seth was commissioned by CBC to undertake this research for a conference we held in December 2018 on the most important economic and fiscal issues facing New York State. You can find the presentation he gave at the conference online at cbcny.org, along with materials from all the other sessions if you're interested. Or, if you prefer, just listen again to the prior episode. What follows in this episode is reaction and discussion from a distinguished panel of experts on the state energy plan and the implications of implementing that plan for residents and business. The panel was moderated by Robert Hoagland, Senior Vice President and CFO of Con Edison, and featured Seth Halkauer, Heather Bricchetti, CEO of the Business Council, Julie Tai, President of the New York League of Conservation Voters, and John Rhodes, Chair of the Public Service Commission, the entity which regulates energy utilities in New York State. Let us know how you like these episodes on energy policy. We're on Twitter at TweetBenMax and at Maria Dulles. We're well into budget season and the legislative sessions, so also remember to check out our websites at GothamGazette.com and CBCNY.org for regular updates. Thanks. I'm talking in soon. So I'm going to assume for the moment that the uh, climate change deniers have all gone to watch the economic development. And that therefore we can all agree. Your lips. That we can all agree that pursuit of greenhouse gas reduction is a is a reasonable use of state power. Um, I think the question is: Are the goals that the state currently has the right ones, and uh, what sort of collateral things are implicit in those goals? So I'll let you, John, start. <clears throat> I'll look for. So um, hopefully it comes as no surprise to you that I champion uh, the state's goals. Um, I think Seth's right. Uh, the, um, the trifecta of objectives, um, clean, affordable, and resilient, is, is apparent. It's the one that everybody lands on that considers the question. Um, but, but, but we mean it. Um, and I think in New York's case, um, it's an agenda of necessity, not of choice. Um, you know, we're not climate change deniers. We know we have to get carbon down. We're aware of the cost issues, um, although, as Seth points out, our, at, a, at a bill level, you know, we're one of the best. We're number 46 in the country in terms of 50 being the best um, of bills, electricity bills. Um, and we know we need to be re- resilient. 
a lot of what we're doing um, kind of crystallized post-Sandy. What's not on this um, chart is uh, the, the imperative that we see of not, we have an aging infrastructure that needs work, attention, um, reinvestment. And so there's a whole um, set of investment and funding, therefore, that's attached to business as usual. And we got this new stuff. And it would be unworkable and unaffordable and wrong and unnecessary to have a double bill of business as usual plus new. So what's, what's important to, in, our, in our thinking and in our policy agenda is really to um, figure out how to do business as usual and new for less than the sum of the two. Right? That's just kind of the basic math that has to work. Um, and we think we can do it, and I can go into more into detail about why we believe that there's evidence that this is possible and evidence that we're actually achieving it. But if you, if you sort of agree that these are good climate goals, these are good resilient goals, and you conclude that they're also affordable, it's hard to have a reasonable point of view other than this is the right agenda. So that, that's kind of our logic. Okay. So, so from the environmental perspective, which is what I bring to the table, um, you know, I think we agree that these are, are the right goals to be having, that we ultimately would love to get to, obviously, 100% renewable energy. I don't think that we, right now, are on a trajectory to do that by 2050. So I think we, at the League of Conservation Voters, at least, are supportive of the 80% by 2050, because we think that's achievable, um, which I think is really important when you're thinking about policymaking, is making sure that things are actually achievable by the by the community that has to make it, while still being in something that is a pull, you know, that we are pulling things forward, that we are trying to innovate and use new technology in order to get there. Um, we are also rational that you need it to be affordable. We don't want to drive all of Heather's businesses out of out of state. I don't want to send them to Pennsylvania, um, selfishly. <laughs> um, and I think that there are a lot of opportunities that can help to bring down those costs as we move forward. We're already seeing that with batteries. The cost of batteries are starting to come down, for example. Um, I think there's a lot more opportunity on energy efficiency, and I know we're going to get to that a little bit later, um, where we are seeing where, where Reggie did not have the this negative consequences I think that people were were, you know, flailing their arms about originally um, in overall. Um, so I think that's been a good model for us, that we have let the market work uh, to help address those situations. So I, I think these are the right goals for the time and that we should keep pushing as, as we move forward and we make progress on those goals. So Heather, I'm going to take away 2050 for the moment because I think that raises a whole different set of issues over the 2030 goals. But starting with the 2030 goals, well, are they I at the right level? Is that reasonable? Um, I mean, I, I think my membership would say that it's not reasonable and it's not something that can be accomplished on the current trajectory that we're on. Um, I mean, I would step back for a minute and, and, and say that uh, you know, many of my members are not just in New York State. They're in other states and um, have the ability to move jobs and sometimes will um, if the cost of doing business in New York is too high. Um, it was... You know, affordability is, is one of the objectives, but certainly um, the addition of new programs and uh, new methods by which 
uh, we try to accomplish these goals has thus far always resulted in an increase in cost, um, save efficiency programs. Um, but if we continue down that path, uh, what will happen, let's just, for the sake of argument, say New York went to zero. If we had zero emissions, the net impact on, on emissions globally is half of 1%. Zero emissions in New York versus the rest of the country would reduce emissions by 3%. Um, so there's a little bit of a, um, a, a mismatch in having these lofty goals if no one else around you has them. Some, some do, um, but it, there needs to be a much more comprehensive approach to it. So Seth raised uh, imports as one way to solve New York's problem. I, I'm going to hold your you know, global versus local question until a little bit later because I think that's a good one. Um, I, just one more on the, on the broad objectives. So we got GHG reductions down from 1990 to 2015, 25 years, by 8.4%. And we need to go to 40 in total over that period. Does that, does that change any panelist's view on likelihood of success? I, I think that, and John will speak to this much more eloquently, I'm sure, than I am, but we're not expecting this to happen in like a nice, smooth trajectory. It's not going to be a 2.5% reduction every year. It's going to come in tranches. Um, I think Reggie's looking at that, you know, from that perspective of how we can step things down. I think the state is making a lot of investments in, in transportation to try and help to help make those down. And I, I know you're questioning whether or not we should be using it for individual cars. You questioned whether or not we should be using it for individual cars. But I think it's an all of the above strategy that's going to help bring all of these emissions down. I think we should spend a lot of time talking about transportation because there are so many opportunities to save money there that are not yet on the table that, that businesses, I think, aren't yet realizing. OK. John. So. So I think the carbon challenge is daunting and um, terrifying and seems sort of, uh, and sometimes can seem sort of an unfair burden on our generation and the generations that follow us. But there's an offsetting benefit that we have. And I'll just crudely say that technology is coming to the rescue. If you look at the resources, and, they, and it's not a coincidence that New York is betting on these resources and how they have behaved in terms of their technical economics, offshore wind has probably been dropping at 20% a year. Not here, because it's new. But if you look at what's been happening in Europe, um, in the space of two years, the, the idea the, the basic price for offshore wind projects went from 10 euro cents a kilowatt hour to 7.6 euro cents to 5.4 euro cents to a German auction at 3 euro cents. That is a stunning pace of cost decline. And it would be, in no business would you have that go on around you and not pay attention as to should you know, should we be paying attention? Should we be betting on that? And if we're betting on something else, should we be worrying? Um, PV, okay, put, let's put chemicals on glass. In the consumer electronics world, that drives costs down. That, that technology is dropping at 10% a year. PV is chemicals on glass. It's actually the same machines, many of the same companies. 
same behavior. Those, and, that, and that trajectory is not slowing. Storage is now at that pace. As a result of storage, PV, uh, electric vehicles are at that, that pace. I agree we shouldn't be subsidizing um, these kind of vehicles, and there's a whole equity thing. But that need may, may be passed. Well, right? but, but I think a place where we could be subsidizing would be to continue to build yeah. out some of the infrastructure, some, sure, of, the, some right. of the charging stations, and also to look at fleets. Right. And, and yeah, but I was just making the point that technology is riding this, and we have not even begun to harness the power of data and analytics, which someone unkindly described. You know, there's the energy world over here, and then there's the free world. <laughs> <laughs> and in the free world, um, that's happened. You cannot look. You cannot find an industry where you know data and sensors and algorithms have not just reduce costs and increased value and possibility. So um, that's why I think that um, you know this is doable. Um, our goals are the right ones, and not just as a, as a set of topics, but I think numerically, and we actually believe we can get to them when we do the math, but it's the reason we, we have confidence is because of the really compelling improvement in cost. Um, and um, we're doing what we can to, to boost that, um, but that's cost reduction is the great enabler of this agenda. So uh, let me riff on that a little bit, John. We'll go to the Seth's page on heavy lift to meet renewable target, which was page nine, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think it gets to this question of affordability, Heather's concerns and how do, how do we fit all these pieces together. So this is one of, this is one of the three 2030 goals, right, which is 50% <coughs> renewables by 2030. And Seth's calculation was? We get two-thirds of the way there. Not yet. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> you, need, you needed about we'll get half the way there. 28.2, I think, uh, gigawatts, gigawatt hours, in order to achieve the goal. And he, his calculation says you get to 20. Um, yeah, you need 29.2, and you, right. 29.2, not yeah, right. Two, right. So two thirds. Right. Yeah. So, and, and my recollection was your number was 32 billion that, in uh, total so, cost. Right. So I, I, add, I, add, I add in essentially another RFP on top of the 2,400 megawatt RFP to get to the $32 billion resource. So, I, so, so we need to do about. 4,000 megawatts of offshore wind, <laughs> essentially, to get to the $32 billion and get to 29,000 gigawatt hours of production. So what I hear you say, John, is technology cost curves are going to come down. That's going to take care of all of Heather's problems. <laughs> it's going to be... Not all of my problems. No. <laughs> no, I mean, no. Uh, no, that would be Panglossian. The, um, The costs are going to help. Uh, sorry, the cost reductions are going to help in a big way, um, as is the incompletely tapped potential of energy efficiency. I'm a firm believer in moving the goalposts. Um, if I get credit for running a 100-meter race, if I only run 80 meters, I, I'd like to do that. And that's mm -hmm. what energy efficiency does, that, does for us. So between the cost reductions that we're talking about, um, 
and I'll just go make a point. So Seth, when he looked at our large-scale renewables, I'm sure saw really only wind as, as the only resource of any significance that was delivering, was, that was winning those procurements. Um, in our last procurement, uh, where we released results for, solar broke into the queue for the first time. And in the more recent um, solicitation, for which we haven't finalized results, but we know what the, you know, what the population of, of resources that came in, solar was a meaningful presence in the bid stack as well. And, so, and that is simply a result of a steep decline in cost that now is making it competitive. So um, it's going to be, um, it's going to take investment. <coughs> um, and certainly there is a um, cost-sensitive lens that you could put on it and sort of say, well, that's excessive cost. Um, but our view is that um, the alternative is not free either. Um, the... Um, um, we can actually accelerate cost decline by the things that we can do in the state. Um, you know, we're not going to make the industry produce solar panels cheaper. You know, I don't know what our influence on the global market is. And it's in the half of 1% right. range or something like that. But we can make it cheaper to deploy them. We can all sort of the costs of going, going out and doing, doing a project can be cheaper than they are today if we take some steps and if the industry you know, the people with the wrenches and trucks do a better job, too, and modernize. So um, there's that. And then finally, I'll just um, observe that there's a little bit of um, um, an economic engine attached to this. Um, I believe we're now at 140,000 green energy jobs. Um, and the bulk of those come from energy efficiency. Um, and that's that's kind of a good thing. Um, and we believe, you know, our numbers show that this is net, net a job engine, this strategy. And again, we believe a net job engine is also a good thing. So, uh, and we need to be more resilient. We can't, you know, I, I'll, just, I'll just go back. The cost of doing nothing or the cost of doing business as usual is actually, is actually costly. When we've done, um, we did an analysis that um, the last 10 years of, um, I think I have these numbers right, the last 10 years of utility investment, the last decade, had been something like $16 billion. If we did everything exactly the same way, the next decade would be $30 billion. So there's a big chunk of extra spend that's coming our way whether we do anything about it or not, why don't we do something intelligent with that money and put it to the best possible over the long haul cost minimizing and sustainability promoting uses. So, um, you know, our math says this is worth it. So, so and there, there are a couple of things, and I, I, I agree with a lot of what John says. Um, the costs are definitely coming down, you know, I, I'm, I'm using what, what are today, today's yeah. estimates, and they're, they're going to change. Um, I think a, a legitimate question for New York is, what is New York prepared to spend uh, in addition to 
to help reduce greenhouse gases. I think that across New York State, you find a pretty strong consensus that attacking greenhouse gas emissions and um, working on climate change are important things because we've seen how vulnerable the state is to climate change. So I, I think I think people are prepared to pay something extra. It, part part of it for me is making sure that we're clear with everybody what it's going to cost and not, not to you know say it. it all all things are possible, and and it, you know your bills your bills your bills will go down. I've I, because I've been in some of those discussions at times, and it's yeah. and and that and that part hurts. Um, part of the point just is this is a lot to build, and trying to get this all done uh, in this schedule is is a real challenge. So so maybe I can help out on that a little bit. I'm going to take what John said and what you said, Seth, and and give Heather a different set of numbers. So this is <laughs> this is 29. 1,200 gigawatt hours that you have to produce to meet the goal, right? right. NYSERDA's last solicitation, the results of which were announced in June, which I think is what you were referring to, John, was uh, $21.71 a megawatt hour subsidy. So that's in addition to whatever market revenues you get, you get $21.71 a megawatt hour on top of that. And that produces about 2,800 gigawatt hours. So you need 10 and, a, 10 and a half solicitations of that magnitude. No offshore wind, to Seth's point, no offshore wind. Um, so no views on prices of that. You need 10 and a half solicitations like that. You do one in 18 for 19, 19 and 20, 2020 20, so on and so forth. 2029 is your last solicitation. You're just in time for your 2030 goal. So it's meetable, Julie. That's the good news. <laughs> um, and that racks up $15 billion in incremental cost. So how does that, how does that play with the your constituency? Does it get made up for by the, by the green jobs? Well, no. I, first, I think looking at uh, jobs as part of the policy is sort of a mistake because you can, it can be very inefficient, right? So uh, let's say you wanted your uh, wind turbines to work when the wind's not blowing. You could pay people to turn the blades. <laughs> I mean, it, those are jobs, but it's not really, and especially in a tight labor market, that's not, that's not really a policy objective that um, I think anyone would, would think is rational. So I, I don't think that's the right measurement. Um, I do think that uh, focusing on cost is a really important thing. And, and some of the, some of the, there was some discussion about the upstate, downstate differential. It really uh, does highlight the need for things like investment in, in transmission, um, particularly gas. Uh, we've got, there's, there's a whole, open playing field of opportunity um, to reduce emissions just by allowing people to shift from oil to natural gas in, in residential heating. And it saves them money. So, so there you have a policy that would actually result in on-the-ground cost savings to consumers um, and a reduction in greenhouse gas and without stacking on additional cost just for the purpose of meeting a goal. Um, so there's a lot of other opportunities that, that aren't being pursued right now. So the status quo that uh, John was talking about, um, right now the status quo is, is kind of adverse, not only adverse to good policy, but it, 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 uh, it's self-defeating because you've got uh, dual fuel units you know, burning in New York City that drive up not only uh, the emissions, but 
you've also got people all across upstate New York on, on oil heat in their homes. Um, and that drives up emissions as well. If you just invest in infrastructure for gas, the emissions go down and the cost goes down. So hopefully that, that's sort of a circuitous way of, of getting to the point. But So I'm going to hold off on gas because I think you're, you're right. There's a whole set of issues related to gas. We'll pick that one up in a minute. Um, but can I just pick yeah. up on something that Heather sure, said, which is I'm just going to subscribe to the belief that under all circumstances, cost-reducing what we do is a good idea. Yeah. I agree. So, um, and that's, I assume that's a point of loud consensus. <laughs> well, and, and to go to the jobs question, I mean, I think there is an interest, we already know that there's an interest in the, in the, and Senator Parker has an interest in looking at another tranche of money going towards energy efficiency, which I think what John was talking about with those green jobs, yeah. not with the inefficient use of wind turbines, right. obviously. And, and there are real opportunities to help improve the, the overall economy. I, I, don't, I don't, yeah, I don't. And those are blue-collar jobs. Yeah. Not, I don't you know. dismiss um, the, the job creation that will occur anytime a new technology is implemented in the economy. I mean, I think, but I, but I think creating jobs for the purpose of creating jobs is not a policy objective that makes any sense. I guess that's... Sold. <laughs> right. I think we all agree with that. Yeah. I, I also think the state has a real opportunity collectively all together to work with our friends in New Jersey, something we don't often say, uh, to help get jobs making those wind turbines here. And those would be your favorite kinds of jobs, manufacturing. Absolutely. Let offshore wind here. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, other, other possible uh, parameters in the electric production. So I think this plan <coughs> assumes that the nukes keep running. Is, is that the right answer for New York State? This plan assumes that the safe nukes keep running. <laughs> Only the safe nukes. Yeah. Okay. But those have to keep running, and they, they're going to need a subsidy to keep running, right? Um, we're prepared for that um, eventuality. Um, the ZEC program has um, a cost containment mechanism built in, um, and... Uh, so, uh, you know, the nukes can run, I'm not sure, they can run at maybe $40, $45 a megawatt hour and stay afloat. $40, $45 a megawatt hour in our recent history is not an unreasonable number in the energy markets. In our more recent, I don't know, five, five-year time frame, it, you know, the numbers have been lower than that. I'm not sure where they are now. Very high twenties, I think. But um, so uh, uh, there's a chance that the nukes won't need the subsidy. Um, it would call for crystal balling um, energy prices. Um, but on the other hand, if if the subsidy continues for nukes, it's because overall energy prices are down significantly below expectations. So, Julie, okay with your constituents? Obviously, we're, we'd like to see Indian Point closed, and I know there's a plan for that. And I spent a lot of time working on that in my old hat, um, uh, as David knows all too well. <laughs> um, so certainly, there's there's zero emissions associated with that, and that's a, a hard hard to get over when you're looking at um, how much opposition there is amongst my colleagues in the environmental movement to that other source of energy that Heather mentioned. Oh, the, the source of energy uh, that shall not be named. 
I feel like most of those pipeline projects, I actually can't talk about. <clears throat> yeah, I, I can talk about them. <laughs> um, I, I have a two-year ban. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think you have to even consider keeping Indian Point open unless you're willing, unless the state at a policy level is willing to invest significantly in infrastructure, gas, and uh, transmission, um, electric transmission infrastructure, because the constraints on the system, uh, there's, there's really just... Uh, you know, maybe offshore wind will help with some of that, mm -hmm. um, but timing-wise, I think um, it, it really is a problem. I think timing is a good question. Can we move to that now? Because that's very popular, I think, with John's organization. Timing, sure. I mean, obviously, you know, at, we're concerned about the pace of projects moving through Article 10. Um, there's a lot of projects in the pipeline, and I think that's good. I think that represents a lot of interest in the in the markets. Um, and I think there's opportunities uh, to help expedite that process. And I know uh, DPS has, has indicated that there were plans on doing that. I know my letter to the governor asked for more staff for the DPS, because having been on the other side of, of the, the table there, um, it would be helpful for DPS to have more staff to be able to process more things. Do, does everybody know what Article 10 is? Sorry. It, <laughs> you want to do it? Anyway, <clears throat> so it's um, it's an article um, uh, <laughs> of law. Actually, it's the tenth one. <laughs> that, that basically is um, uh, a, a siting and permitting review for generation projects, not just renewables, but um, in the current environment, the new the new projects that are being built are in fact renewables. Um, it's a of any significant size, the, the above 25 megawatts, which is not, which is not a, a hard number to get over, um, and the two primary issues um, that that raise concerns um, that need to be dealt with in this process are environmental concerns and uh, community concerns, and so it's, it's it's a process to handle those things and ultimately to get uh, good projects built, um, and it's a process that can be improved, and will, is being improved and will be improved. But yes, um, it's quite true that uh, um, it would be possible to have pro processes in government that would get in the way of deploying those kind of re that level of resource, and, and we don't want that to happen. Right, and I think that that's something that the environmental community and local governments can work together on to help support that. Because I, I think there is a lot of, if we looked at it from the DEC perspective, and now on the outside, there's a lot of NIMBY. You know, people don't want projects there in their communities, and they have concerns that that seem surmountable. Um, that you know, I think sometimes you have local governments who don't fully understand how to zone for things um, or what it might mean for their community in the positive. And certainly, I, I will offer you right now, we are welcome to help with that process. That's good. You'll be called on. Yeah, but so I think you're touching <laughs> a broader, and I don't mean to be flip. Yes, we need, we need help. Um, we need um, ideas on how to do better. Um, and we need um, partnership in order to enable us to do better. But in general, um, I think you've sort of broached the topic that I think of as legitimacy, which mm -hmm. is, um, if you think about, obviously we're convinced that we're um, we're on the right track. Otherwise, we wouldn't be working as hard as we are to do it. Uh, but 
hypothetically, there could be people on, on the other side um, of the view. And uh, for this um, journey to work out and for us to get where we need to go, um, the standard of legitimacy means we have to pay attention to the concerns, understand them, uh, stop when the concerns are real enough to, to, to sort of suggest that we should stop or modify or mitigate or, or the like. And it's not a, it's not a mystery what, what the concerns are. Um, cost is a concern. Uh, NIMBY is a concern. Um, fairness is a concern. You know, you're doing this, and where, you know, what's the incidence of the cost, upstate versus downstate, um, economic strata, and the like. And then <clears throat> the other, the other reality is that the energy system is um, has grown up over time. You know, it's quite a big industrial complex, <laughs> and there are incumbents, and incumbents could sometimes lose when there's change. So, you know, so, the, so the four issues are fairness, and resistance, potential resistance of incumbents, and then NIMBY, which, which is a little bit of a disparaging term, but the concerns are often, the, the are often valid, yeah, the, the, right? Yeah. And, and costs, which uh, uh, I, we absolutely agree is, is an enemy, and we need to, we need to attack. Well, the, I mean, the concerns are, uh, are certainly legitimate, and I, I've um, I still have the scars to show from public hearings uh, talking about trying to build projects and, and to build transmission lines. Um, I'll add to NIMBY the, the, one of my fav favorite phrases, which is banana, which is build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> which, which is one of the challenges, which is that you know, sometimes it doesn't matter what you're proposing. Um, and and one, of the, one of the topics that really runs into that are building uh, we talked about gas transmission, but also electric transmission, mm -hmm. because these large wind farms are going to need a lot of electric transmission uh, added, whether they're, the offshore will have, you know, we're going to decide on what kind of uh, an, an offshore transmission network we build, whether it's each project builds its own or there's a network built. But even so, there's still a lot of upgrade that needs to be done onshore, and then to bring power uh, from, from upstate down because look, two thirds of the people live in the state. Two thirds of the energy consumption is is downstate, but we don't have two thirds of the clean energy downstate. We've actually got two thirds of the clean energy upstate. <laughs> um, uh, so we we have to find ways to persuade people that it's in their broader interest to see some of these projects go forward. And uh, that that is uh, actually talked about a little bit in the previous panel, which is creating the the political will and political consensus to support these projects and not, uh, not to disregard the local concerns, but to, um, but, but to make them a factor and, and work with them. So just, in it. just to jump in on that, um, simplifying grossly, Massachusetts did disregard the local concerns. It got two wind farms built. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> There's never going to be another onshore wind farm built in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. which is a recipe for, well, for failure, basically, if we were to emulate that. So, and I think I, I, NIMBY is obviously shorthand 
um, for a lot of, of local concerns. And, and you're right, Article 10 has authorized you to bypass that um, home rule, but you've wisely, I think, chosen not to do that. And I think this is where, where the environmental community and NGOs can be helpful in talking to the community to help them overcome those concerns that they have or to address misinformation that is out there. Um, and I think you'll find probably welcome partners in local governments at least trying to understand that. Um, certainly, I've always found the associations to be really helpful. Article 10 of what? The state, <laughs> the public service law. Okay. It's a state, it's a state law. It was in place for many years. It lapsed. It no, allows. It's not with nuclear energy. It, no, it's, no, it's no, not. It's exciting. Yes. That, exciting. That's, it, I believe it's <clears throat> the 2012 or 13 revision to what used to be called Article X, like a Roman. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, Seth, in the numbers that you've got up here, we don't have transmission costs or storage costs. And right? that, that's correct. That's so correct. so as, the, as the generation fleet changes over in the state and it's more renewable and more, therefore, probably upstate and offshore, you're going to need transmission, you're going to need storage, those have costs as well as all the political issues that have been described. So more to come. That's, that's goal one of the three 2030 goals. We're going to run out of time, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> do, you have a, do we have some questions? Before? Sure. Now? Yeah. I was, was going <laughs> to try a couple <laughs> others. But at lunch. <clears throat> on generation, sure. All right, well, here, uh, I live in Westchester. And I also live in Northeast Pennsylvania. Just so you know, my utility bill for gas and electric in Westchester was $530. Thank you, Gunn. PPL charged about $240. Just keep that in perspective. The other thing is, every year, there's a snowstorm of some magnitude or an ice storm that has the effect of knocking out power in a large portion of southern Westchester County. This has gone on now for a number of years. It takes about three days for a guy, I'm sorry, a truck with five guys from Con Ed to come over and screw around and look at it for a while. I go down to Pennsylvania because PPL has a very robust distribution system and they never go out. You with me so far? So far. Why is it that the state, I know you're laughing, but this is actually, a, this is a valid point. Why is it that the state, either through NYSERDA or through PSC, doesn't have a program where it provides solar panels on every frigging house in this in say where I live and create enough energy storage with batteries, which I understand that capacity is increasing, so that I could put these big batteries in my basement and when the power goes off, I just turn it on and everything works in my house for a week to ten days, which is how long it sometimes takes for Con Ed to do this. Well, they have to run down to Scranton, and then, because I wouldn't want to stay in my house anyway, because first the furnace is not on, but worse, I have all these, you know, neighbors with, with powerful gas generators making a racket all day long. So, That's my so, question. So, so many points there. One, look. <laughs> uh, so I think you already know the answer, or you already know my view of the answer. Um, if, if there were evidence that the economics were there, we'd be all in 
undoing that. Um, and it's also, I just I should go on to say that there's a level of which, you know, this state energy team's policy are, um, we focused on the subsidies that, 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 loom, that loom large, and, and I can understand why. But we don't actually like subsidies. Uh, we like the idea that the market can get to a place where we no longer need subsidies. And yes, I can probably guess, you know, by drawing the lines, which kind of go down nicely, at what point, you know, solar plus storage, kind of a Tesla wall done well, um, could be a useful idea for every home. Um, there's some technical issues about how long they'd, you'd be able to ride through because storage right now is kind of cost effective for four hours, which doesn't get you through a night. Uh, but in my ideal world, the state role for that solution would look a whole like, lot like the state role for air conditioning, which is why the state does not go out there and sort of dictate you know, deployment strategies for, for air conditioning. You know, there's, there's a world out there of people who make the stuff and people who distribute it and people who install it. Um, and they listen to customers and give them more or less the solution that the customer thinks they want. That would be the ideal world. And if we can, if we can drive the cost down, then we can get those kind of solutions happening that way. And I will note that on Long Island, rooftop solar for two and a half years has had not a state has not had a state subsidy because of that. Well, Isn't part that metering work. The net metering is part of the, the thing, and but we're 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 getting into the range where we don't even need metering. Um, part of that is because Long Island is, as we know, downstate, and we've just we've just told each other that electricity costs downstate are high. So it's in in with respect to the opportunity for solar, high electricity costs are a good thing because you're displacing more. As you know, your displacement is more valuable. But the policy is to is to use everything we do at NYSERDA and with kind of the rates and with the investments to get the cost down and to, to the place where um, the subsidies are no longer needed. But we're not going to do subsidies too early in the game because that's a way of sort of spending money for not a lot of impact. Why don't you do PACE financing as opposed to subsidies? Because financing does not solve an economic defect. If a project is unprofitable, Financing can't make it profitable. I, I just uh, can I just jump in for a second. I'd like to do something dangerous, which is defend Con Ed, um, <laughs> who is a, a member of, of the business council. Um, just so you, I, a lot of people aren't aware that um, utility companies are very, very strongly incentivized to get the power on as quickly as possible. In fact, they suffer some pretty strong financial penalties for the, both the frequency of outages and also the duration and the length of outages. Um, and many of the utility companies um, have agreements where if you have a particular 
part of the state that has been hit hard, uh, they will send, uh, other utility companies will send their guys to try and get everything back on as quickly as possible. So I just, I wanna make sure that you know that, that it's not in their interest for it to be a long outage and it's not in their interest to have a lot of uh, frequent outages. Um, so it, there's probably some pretty severe situation that might be unique to this, this area um, that just causes it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and just for the record, um, it's part of our job description to be vigilant yep. um, on, on that score um, and to urge the utility companies to do whatever they can um, to, to get the power back and to, um, uh, to, to look to resources from elsewhere, right, from, from within the state um, but also from all, all, all neighboring regions and for those who care. You know, there's a fairly effective mutual aid agreement, uh, mutual aid agreement that um, is, uh, well, not just, it's not just U.S. I mean, in Riley and Quinn, which I believe is, stores, is the storms you were talking about, we had, um, we had Ontario and, and Quebec providing a lot of troops. Um, so. That's what I mean. <laughs> are, there, are there other? Someone else's turn. Fine, but then I have another question. More? Well, I, I was. Can we talk a little bit here about. Um, I'm, I'm going to try and segue here. Although the, the grid and the importance of the grid in, in the long run, and particularly is energy uh, or greenhouse gas reduction here dependent on our moving more and more to electricity? And if it is, how is the grid going to play into that, peak load, heating, all of Just give it a sense of, sure. you know, you're talking about substituting at the current levels, but are we talking about the same level of electricity in the future that we need, or do we need more from the system, and how would that come about? So uh, I think a great way to frame it for the panel is if you move to the 2050 goal rather right. than the 2030 goal, you have to get GHG down by 80% in the economy as a whole. Transportation is almost 30. 40 percent. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, you're right. Between 30 and 40 percent. Yeah. Mid-30s, mid-30s. So you got to do something fundamentally different with transportation. Buildings. Space heating mm -hmm. is another 30 or so percent, and that's predominantly still in the state fossil fuels. So you'd have to make big changes in the input energy mix in those two areas in order to get to an 80% reduction yeah. by 2050. So where, where you, does that take? You, you, you need to essentially triple the power production capability of New York State. And what you see is the, the electric production, yeah. right, because we're, because we're changing all these things. We're, we're changing heating systems to uh, yeah. electric, to ground source <laughs> heat pumps and, and different things like that. Uh, all the transportation is electric. And what we're seeing actually is that New York, which has been a summer peaking state, uh, converts to a winter peaking state. Um, we, we have to not only triple the power production, but we have to triple the, uh, the, the grid uh, infrastructure. We've actually got to dig up the streets in, in New York City to add more uh, power lines and, and expand the capability of the power lines there. And then upstate, all the, uh, the distribution, the overhead distribution has to be uh, tripled as well. So we, we haven't factored any of that uh, investment well, cost into it. So just to be 
So we're paying attention to that. I, there are estimates that, okay, so it's pretty clear that if you accepted the general view of where the different technologies are, that if you want to decarbonize, to use that word, um, transportation, electrification is a really good move uh, and probably the best bet you can make. And it's also true that if you wanted to decarbonize space and water heating, um, electrification, again, is, 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 is what you'd bet on. Um, and you'd make that bet with some confidence, but I just observe that um, uh, if you go back to what people were saying 10 years ago about what to bet on, it would not have been the list that we're doing now. Um, so technology can surprise us mostly in good ways. Um, so that does, electrification means obviously um, what it sounds like. Uh, the estimates of what that means for load vary. Um, some go as high as you suggest, uh, many do not. Um, so there's a, um, you know, there's a wide range. The future is going to be discovered as, as we get close to, closer to it. Um, but that, that, starts, that needs to start factoring in. Um, if you electrify transportation, you probably need to um, you know, uh, provide equal whatever, um, it's not the right word, but BTUs in my mind, um, electricity that you do in, uh, from, from gasoline. If you, electrif if you electrify um, space and water heating, you don't. Um, you know, the current technologies use, you know, kind of the, the steady state temperature of the earth, whatever, five degrees below ground level, um, and actually reduces the number of BTUs. So the electrification impact is not a one-for-one -one trade-off. But yes, that needs to be factored in. Um, and in general, the grid needs to be um, updated. Um, you're going to have a lot more um, energy affecting equipment on the, on the distribution grid than you do today, right? You're going to have solar in a lot more places. You're going to have um, storage in a lot more places. You're going to have the charging stations for the electric vehicles in a lot more places, and in some cases there'll be really, really intense pockets of load. If you think of kind of fleets of heavy-duty vehicles, those are going to be big spiky things. Um, so you're going to want a lot more, you're going to want a more um, adaptable, controllable grid than we have now. Um, I think the technology is flowing onto the grid in a pretty, in a pretty good way. Um, one, of the, um, one of the things that I think New York got right is its timing on advanced metering, um, which is sort of an intelligent meter attached to a customer. Um, we weren't the first, um, or even the first wave. I think that's served us well. Um, Con Ed is the utility that's out in front on it. That's sort of happening in waves. Um, I think Westchester is where they're going in now, right? I believe, right? You've sort of done yep. Staten Island? Yep. Um, but sort of that kind of intelligence and controllability and sensor and situa situational awareness is, is just going to be part of, part of what's needed. Um, and um, I th 
that technology is just going to surprise us there as well, but that needs to happen. So we need more and we need smarter. Um, that, that much is clear. So I'm going to add one last question. Take us away from the grid and the generation, which is where we spent the, the bulk of the conversation, talk about energy efficiency. Um, because that's the other way to get to the objective is to not consume, right? But energy efficiency raises questions about standards and codes. It's where people live. It's where people work when you talk about building envelopes. So I'm curious, Heather and Julie, reactions on EE as a solution and the implications of that. And John also discussed it as a job creator. So do you want to go first? You can go first if you like. So uh, we're, we're obviously we're very excited about what NYSER does. Our DPS is putting out um, last week as far as how we start moving ahead towards energy efficiency. I think we're we're working on what New York City is looking at for dealing with buildings. We do think energy efficiency needs to be a major part of what we're talking about. Um, I think that there are a lot of opportunities. In energy efficiency, we're 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 wasteful, right? We're wasteful with our water. We're wasteful with our emissions. We, we haven't had a cost associated with that. And to the extent that we can now look at pressure on prices, we can help balance them out if we're investing in energy efficiency and helping reduce what our footprint is. Um, I think that really looking at New York City, because in New York City. Because of the, the significant transportation efficiencies that we have, buildings really are the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we need to ratchet down those. Um, we have old infrastructure with old infrastructure problems. Everyone's heard me say this, right? My house was built in 1853 in Albany, um, and every house in my neighborhood is the same way. It's a lot faster to make reductions in that if you're dealing with multifamilies like you would be in New York City. Um, and I think there are you see those savings faster. Uh, we, we agree there are some flaws with the bill that's out there now. Um, certainly having one rent-regulated apartment in a building is not an efficient, exempting them from having to do anything is not efficient because those are people that you know, will, will realize those savings the most. Um, you mentioned that earlier, if there was something uh, like a cap and trade, that's an area where there could really be opportunities. So certainly, we don't want to see that happen. And I think the state also needs to be continuing to ratchet down its, its building code to help address those issues. I, so I, I would say first, um, I think absolutely efficiency is, is a, a key component. And it's something that um, if you look to high industrial users, you'll find a lot of examples of uh, motivation to create their own sort of efficiencies in their own programs, um, not just in things like insulating, but also in recapturing heat and using it for other purposes. And uh, you know, I have in my membership uh, corn and glass. If you want to talk about an intensive energy user and a savvy energy user, yeah, very, they're they're very. And so I think <clears throat> rather than um, state policymakers, um, legislators creating programs on efficiency. Um, that they want to apply across the board to everyone, they should first start by looking at some of the, the really cutting-edge energy efficiency um, programs or practices that exist in the, in the, in the industrial sector. Um, and, and I, I mean, there's obviously the, the cost of electricity is a huge motivator mm -hmm. for them, um, but there's some really, really um, incredible and innovative solutions they've come up with. So, um, last word. So we believe in energy efficiency too. It's um, you know the energy you don't use is, is your best resource. 
Um, I think the world kind of comes in two flavor when it comes to energy efficiency. You've got the people are, who have, a, for their own reasons, reason to pay a lot of attention to it, um, like a heavy industrial user or some other uh, super heavy user. Um, and they do do brilliant, innovative stuff. Um, and a lot of that is exportable to the rest of the world. Um, then there's the rest of the world, which is buildings, whatever, a home or, or, a, or a business. Um, and there, I'll just observe that the way we've approached it has all of the hallmarks of a government-driven model. And this, that's not a compliment. Um, <laughs> it is really hard to do energy efficiency. Um, it's just brain damaging. I think most of us would rather buy and sell our apartment than try to figure out an energy efficiency project that's you know for you know one two hundredth of the cost. And if you want, we want people to do energy efficiency. And there's there's a mantra. If you want people to do something, you have to make it easy. Um, and that's kind of, that's, that's our next frontier on energy, on energy efficiency. Um, we're, 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 taking, we're taking steps to that in, in our order that, that folks have mentioned that came out on Thursday. But um, our, the, front, the difficult front on energy efficiency is not the sophisticated users, because they're probably ahead of the game. Um, the difficult front is for the people that, you know, for whom energy, they don't want it to be a top of mind issue. You know, they want to think about their children or their job or, you know, getting the next shipment out or, or not, not what I have to do about this pesky bill. And so we have to make it easy for them. And there are ways to do that, but that's really a, a journey we've barely started. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. 25%. Yeah. So we could uh, thank Seth yeah. and the panel for their time. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Nice to be done. Bye.